Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Here we go again. It is the weekend in April the 20th of 2018 and welcome to the Vet Gurus podcast. Mark, we forgot last week to give out our contact details and the competition. We forgot about the competition. We have the fantastic competition of a guide to health of disease in reptiles textbook that will be posted anywhere in the world for the winner. And what is the competition, Mark? Do you want to outline what that the readers or the listeners have to do? The competition, Brendan, the competition um, is for a story. We want a veterinary story, um, particularly something that will make us laugh and uh, particularly something that pertains to avians or exotics. Um, and the prize, the prize is like, just the best thing and um I'd, i was uh, um at pains to point out that um uh, there are probably some places in the world that will cost um more to send the prize than the prize is worth in dollar value but in actual value to the individual the prize will be immense it'll be just it's an awesome book we love it we promote it all the time because it has so much good information and such a pleasure to be able to give it away so that means, Mark, if one of our winners from Brazil wins and all our listeners from Brazil, and we've got a few listeners in Brazil, then the cost of sending it over there, you are saying, is um, nothing compared with the value of the book. Is that what you're saying? That's the interpretation I was hoping you <laughs> draw out of that, Brendan. <laughs> um, somehow I, yeah, I, I find that Hard to believe, actually. Yeah, well, although it does have some very good pictures in there, doesn't it? Of some um, interesting conditions in reptiles. So maybe I should be selling it a little bit better than I am at the moment, Mike. But yes, we want people to email us, say hello to us, and tell us a funny story, whether you're a vet or a vet nurse or a vet technician. Contact us because it gets a bit lonely out here in podcast land, doesn't it, Mark? If we don't get a flood of emails into us each week, we feel sad and depressed. How's your week been, Mark? Well, it's, it's been pretty good, Brendan. We've had a pretty good week. Um, uh, the uh, practice has been uh, nice and busy. We've had, we've had lots of um, uh, interesting cases. In fact, this is one of the things about practice that's um, uh, been a little bit of a, a, a quandary for me lately. It, um, it would have here that um, we're getting more and more complicated cases and so we're spending more time dealing with diabetics and complex fractures and um, and things that take some time to work up we don't seem to be doing as many simple cat abscesses or you know the things that um, that uh, I seem to recall from uh, when after I first graduated that we did quite a lot of but we don't seem to be doing as many of them I don't know whether that's a general across the um, the profession thing or whether it's just to do with the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital what's it like been like at um, down at Warrenwood Brendan We've had an interesting mix of things this week, Mark, especially uh, some fun cases, like which introduces our topic this week in that I uh, just took the sutures out of a mature female dog that I'd finally managed to desex because it developed lots of mammary tumours. So that was a 
bit of a challenging case there because we did bi- I did biopsies on two of those tumours and one came back as a fairly benign one and one came back as a nasty one. So I took out the basically the chain uh, of that mammary chain there that was drained into the axillary region there. But yes, I don't see too many of those in my practice. I don't know whether you see many many uh, um, undesexed mature dogs and cats that you are trying to convince the clients the reasons why we desex these animals. But as far as cat abscesses, I have seen a few this week. I actually did two or three this week, Mark, so maybe things are a little bit different down here in Melbourne. Maybe our cats are a bit more feisty than the cats up in the Newcastle area. I'm not quite sure. So, yeah, apart from that, it's been a crazy week weather-wise, Mark. It's been wet and cold and rainy, and at one stage I thought we might have one of our big gum trees come down here. But fortunately enough, they didn't. We have one big gum tree of the next door neighbours and we're very good friends with the next door neighbours where they've had several branches over the years come down. One of them came down over our carport, another one came down over our clothesline, another branch came down over their chook shed, their chicken shed and there's probably three quarters of the gum tree still there so I'm expecting over the next few years several further branches to come down. I wish they would just chop it down. I do like trees, but this tree needs to go, Mark. It needs to go. I'm getting quite angry about a tree here, Mark, so you better take over from here. How's your week been otherwise? You do seem to be getting a bit excited about that tree. I've been to your place, and um, and those trees, you've got a beautiful suite, a beautiful forest of trees, and and while that particular one does send you the occasional gift, um, I, I, um, I, I think it's a beautiful part of the world you live in. We, um, uh, I, I, it never ceases. There's something in the air, Brandon, because every time we get prepared for one of these podcasts and you bounce a few ideas off me, has this been happening, has that been happening, um, even when we're not talking about the podcast, it's amazing the symmetry we see in um, in our practices uh, that are, you know, whatever they are, a thousand kilometres apart um, because we have had the uh, a little run on um, those aged female dogs that uh, that haven't been de-sexed and uh, we've had a couple of pyometrin cases and a couple of uh, um, mammary tumours over the last couple of weeks. So it is amazing. It never ceases to amaze me how every time you m- seem to mention one of these things, um, it seems that we've both been dealing with the same problem. So I think it's a timely thing for us to touch on and, and uh, talk about and how it uh, how some of those things, uh, you know, influence other species as well. But particularly the dogs have been a problem lately. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we'll get more into the desexing during our main topic, which is the reason why we recommend desexing, especially of our small mammals, and we'll go through the cases of them. But let's jump into the news items, Mark, and you have the first one, which I think you thought was quite appropriate. Well, I, I, thought, you were trying to, I thought you were trying to, when you sent me the, uh, the link for our first topic, I thought you were trying to make some sort of comment. Um, it uh, is a, a reprint of an earlier article from the uh, Mother Nature Network, which asks, can you learn empathy? And, um, you know, Brendan and I have often talked about uh, um, empathy as one of the, the uh, characteristics that veterinarians have to have in abundance. They really need to um, to 
to express empathy at every point. And specifically, just so we've got our definitions right, um, we'd want to define empathy as um, the ability to understand or uh, um, share the feelings of another. So it's almost like being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and see the world from their point of view. And there's been a number of... um, uh, a large number of studies uh, that have suggested that the total amount of empathy uh, floating around the human species is uh, is drying up. Brendan, there's not as much as there once were was, and um, and uh, obviously I think that uh, that plays both uh, as something that veterinarians need to have when they talk to their clients, but also as something that clients need to have uh, when they talk to their veterinarians. I think it's a um, a very uh, um, pertinent topic to have a talk about. Um, So uh, I've often wondered, and this particular article talks about how um, genetics might uh, play a role in the expression of empathy um, and there have been you know obviously we can one of the things that um, I would venture as a routine observation is that um, on balance women probably express more empathy than men um, our present company excluded Brendan of course um, but um, I think that uh, that sort of suggests to the scientists in me that there may be some uh, heritable component to um, the the um, the process of of empathy and um, and researchers have not been able to um, specifically identify a gene that might or group of genes that might correlate with empathy uh, but they definitely have um, in a number of studies uh, identified um, differences in uh, genetic uh, material um, once they've done DNA analyses um, that uh, that do suggest there uh, might be intrinsic genetic differences. However, um, the estimates from people, I don't know how they do this, but um, uh, the estimates is that the variation in the degree of empathy between individuals might only be down to uh, genetics uh, as a factor of about 10%, that 90% of the uh, um of the, the, the ability to feel what other people are feeling um, uh, comes from what we learn from our environment, Brendan. Um, and unless you're going, you were going to say something. No. Well, I was, but no. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying to feel what you were feeling. <laughs> well, Can You Learn Empathy was the title of this article, and the answer is who cares, Mark? Uh, is what I would say. Uh, no, I think it's a good article because it does mention about the possibility, as you were just about to say, that it may be genetically related, but it can be learned. And I think that's a good a good point in that we need to constantly think about this sort of thing because we need to be better people, I think, Mark, and we need to listen is the main thing. And I don't – and I'm flicking through the article here and they have that little – graphic there say hello i'm a good listener um, um, label there and i think that's something that i need to practice all the time and i think that's why women are much better at empathy than men because we don't listen as much do we we tend to get distracted and annie my wife often yells at me and says why why um weren't you listening to what i what i just said and um 
Sometimes I, I'm not. Um, so we need to learn to listen more, and I think that's a big part of becoming more empathetic, Mark. So that's what I was going to say. Sorry, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we can learn empathy, Mark, and we need to learn to be more empathetic. I think it ties in quite nicely with the topic we were speaking about last week or the week before with dealing with, or the week before that, dealing with difficult customers or clients when part of that process is when you sit there or stand there and you just listen to them vent their anger of their complaint to you, but actually listen and process what they're talking about before you decide to open your mouth or to say, what did you say? (laughs) But you, there is this um, uh, the, that what, there's a special name for it, isn't it? Active listening or um, responsive listening, where you um, you not only listen with your ears, but instead of saying things in response to you know a, in answer to what people are saying, you reflect what they're you know you, you um, what's the right word you you. Um, validate what they're saying by returning it back to them. And in that way, they realise that you're understanding what they're saying or trying to at least. Sometimes you might reflect what they're trying to say and not get it wrong, but at least if you go through that process where they say, oh, I'm worried about this, I think this has happened wrong, and you go, yes, I can see it from your point of view, this is the way I see it, Um, then that's much better than just being quiet in front of them and at the end of it going, well, thanks for that and I'll talk to you later on. <laughs> well, speaking of that, Mark, I'll, I'll move on to the next story <laughs> and, and that is maybe red squirrels of the Yukon are not empathetic or are they, Mark, because they are baby-killing cannibals. And in a study published this week, or last week actually, in the Scientific Naturalist, researchers report that North American red squirrel pups often fall victim to attacks from nearby males. Males Sometimes these murderous males also eat the youngsters they kill, says the article. So it's about infanticide with these red squirrels and quite interesting if I flick down here um it might be counterintuitive that more killings happen in the good years because apparently they determined that the squirrels doing the killings were not the fathers of the pups being killed and that the infanticide skyrockets in the years when food is abundant mark so they think it makes sense given that female squirrels are also much more likely to have a second litter of pups in years where there's more food around So I presume the logic behind that is that um, let's kill all those pups because they shouldn't be popping out more pups because even though it's a good year, we don't want too many young pups here. So during the first round of breeding, females mate with multiple males. Maybe that's why they're killing them, Mark, because they're not being... I think it's a selfish gene story, isn't it? It's like um, I'm going to kill all those other babies so um, this squirrel can, this lovely woman squirrel can have my my offspring. And, um, yeah, it's a... um, it's a really interesting story how um, the dynamics of uh, resources um, uh, point to the time when there's going to be most offspring each year. Um, that's the time when the, uh, the males think, you know what, I'm going to increase the proportion of um, my genes that remain in this population after I'm going. Absolutely, and I think that follows on quite well with what 
they mention later on in the article that infanticide is not unheard of in the animal kingdom and the classic one there is some species such as lions for instance have become infamous for some males killing all the young young when they take over the pride so yeah it's uh, yeah so are they empathetic mark or um, or are they just being um, yeah j- just trying to um, increase their the chances of their their gene pool being passed on um, I'm I'm coming down strongly on the side of psychopathy with squirrels. <laughs> yes. Um, so I like to take on the quirky news stories, don't I, Mark, which you'll see with my last one as well. But let's jump into the third one. And you've got a, um, um, I've got, I've got a comment or two about this particular news story once you um, get stuck into it, Mark, and that's about turtles. Well, I'm really, I am really keen to hear your opinion on it because it's um, it's one that's played on my mind a fair bit as well. It's the story of um, some recent research on um, the uh, Mary River turtle, um, which uh, jumped into the um, general consciousness uh, at the time when um, one of the sunshine. Uh, Mary River, which uh, is a river uh, in the hinterland of the Sunshine Coast. It was going to be dammed by the Traveston Dam. I think this was about 10 years ago. Um, And uh, the Mary River turtle was the iconic species which uh, triggered Peter Garrett, who was the Environment Minister at the time, um, to uh, to, um, not allow the dam to go ahead. But um, as a consequence of that high profile at that time, there's now quite a lot of research going on in this uh, on this endangered species. Um, and the turtle often gets referred to as a punk turtle because one of the famous photographs of this turtle um, uh, shows it with a lovely crop of algae growing on its uh, um, on the scales of its head, um, which sort of is a result of um, some of the behaviour that it, uh, that this turtle does. Um, uh, but um, that photograph has, um, has uh, meant that in much of the popular media it, uh, the Mary River turtle gets referred to as the punk turtle. And it has one other um, strange uh, um, behaviour, which is common to a few of our um, freshwater turtles here in Australia, and that is that um, they uh, um, pump water um, oxygen-rich water from their environment into their cloaca um, and they use the mucosa of the cloaca as a respiratory surface, sucking some additional oxygen out of the um, out of the, the water. Um, so they actually breathe through their bum, Brendan. Yes, sure I think that's... I had two two people contact me this week about this particular story, people who don't particularly read a lot of nature-based stories because they noticed those two exact things. One is the, the punk look of that famous photo, and I did mention that probably that was almost certainly a once-off with that being the algae growing in on that particular turtle's head, making it look like a little punk rocker. Uh, so not all of these merry turtles have a punk look with algae on their head. And secondly, the fact that they breathe through their butt or they breathe through their bum and they find that that quite fascinating and amusing. I mean, my, my, my comment that I was going to make with it is I have been fortunate enough to physically handle and, 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 and see a couple of these turtles up close. So it would be interesting to see whether or not you have as well, Mark. I expect you have, considering you've touched most of the... The famous species around, and they're 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 pretty 
I call them buffheads, these turtles. They're, they're, they're quite solid turtles, aren't they, Mark, these turtles? Have you had a chance to to, to, to deal with them physically um, up close? We have lifted a, I have lifted a couple of them up, um, and, and buffhead does them just their physical presence quite some justice, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the buffhead turtles. So what um, was there anything else about this particular story that well, the, piqued your the interest, the last thing I was going to say was the main thrust of this story was that uh, the population, the analysis of the population um, uh, suggests that um, there's, they're not recruiting large numbers of new turtles, that um, they live to 100, um, they probably start becoming reproductively uh, active at the age of 15 to 20, but the population uh, is showing a large number of very old turtles um, and uh, just a few in that sort of 15 to 20 age age group and not many underneath. So um, even though the dam has been stopped, there is some uh, ongoing worries about uh, the way this population might be declining and not immediately apparently because um, the, the, uh, a lot of those old turtles that are not as reproductively active, they're not um, dying off yet. They're, you can still see them. Uh, the population of the river is estimated to be about 10,000 turtles, but um, whether the, that's a, a population that can maintain the reproductive activity, we don't know. Um, and the usual suspects, foxes and um, and uh, uh, other um, the ca- uh, catfish, um, there's been a, a number of catfish populating the Mary River um, and they um, get to a particular size and, and uh, they're native catfish, but they'll uh, feast on the hatchlings. And so um, the population's um, a little bit in danger and, uh, and you know, saved from the dam, but still may not make it to the future is the take-home message of that story. Yes, the age in population market, it parallels with what's happening with humans, doesn't it? Um, and it makes me almost want to Lose my mind, Mark, lose my (laughs) mind. So the last story is a sad one, and I always take these particular ones because I'm a bit of a sad sack sometimes, aren't I, Mark? Um, The Australia's last flamingo, Chile, or maybe we should call it Chile, has died at the Adelaide Zoo in South Australia. So Zoos Australia, which runs Adelaide Zoo, announced last week that Chile, the Chilean flamingo or Chilean was humanely put to sleep on Friday after her quality of life deteriorated due to age-related health issue. And it was, she was aged in her late 60s, which is pretty damn old for a flamingo, isn't it, Mark? Um, and the sad news follows the death of her companion, which was called Greater, who died in 2014, aged 83, Mark. So that's even older. That's pretty, not bad, 60, 83 and, and late 60s. And um, for those of you who don't know, there's currently a moratorium on the importation of flamingos to Australia. And at this time, it is not known whether the Adelaide Zoo could expect to house flamingos once more. The good news is... It's estimated there are around 300,000 individuals remaining in the wild, Mark, but no more flamingos for Australia, Mark. That is news story number four. And our last one, Mark, so I don't... Um, any comments on that particular story or not? Otherwise, we'll move on to our... I was just going to quickly ask you if you knew why there was a moratorium. I know they're very difficult species to keep and they generally thrive with... um, 
larger numbers. So I, I suppose that's the reason that uh, the Australian family of zoos have decided to hold off on uh, importing any more. No, I don't, Mark, and I must admit I was going to look up that um, or research that before our podcast, but I didn't quite get time, so it's something we might be able to report on next. So we'll jump into the main story, which is basically a bit of a rundown of why we recommend D-Sex in our pets. And first off, we'll talk about the main three reasons, I think, Mark, that we generally talk about for why we recommend desexing, which includes dogs and cats. So we're going to stick to small mammals, aren't we, Mark, I think, this week. So do you want to run through the basic thoughts of why we recommend desexing these mammals for sure, I'll start with, uh, um, I think we'll start with talking about dogs. That's a good starting point, sort of reflects our veterinary education. Um, and obviously the main reason that uh, we think about desexing them is to limit the opportunity for breeding. Um, and in turn, if we can uh, have that effect on a significant proportion of the population, then um, we can limit the number of unwanted pups uh, that, uh, that we have to find homes for, Brendan. Um, but it also has an effect on uh, behaviour um, and there's lots of evidence to suggest that um, uh, um, uh, we'll be uh, better off, um, particularly maybe in our small mammal species that's an even more profound effect, um, but there's no doubt that um, behaviour is more more conducive to the companion animal lifestyle um, if there's an absence of sex hormones surging through the body. Um, and uh, um, there's a bit of evidence around now. I think there's some very good papers which suggest um, that animals that have been desexed uh, have likely um, an increased lifespan as well. So um, uh, in our dogs, we tend to focus on those um uh, health issues. The, in the female dogs, we'll uh, see mammary tumours and um, uh, uterine uh, tumours. Pyometrin, I mentioned earlier in the piece that we've had a couple of dogs that we've had to chop pussy uteruses out of over the um, last couple of weeks. Um, and in the males, uh, there is an increase in the complexity and structure of the prostate gland so um they're they're probably the the starting points for dogs um there are other reasons for in other uh, in our other small mammals though brendan aren't there absolutely and i think most of us including the vet nurses or technicians that are listening will will know those particular aspects off the top of head because they're taught about the dog and cat desexing and the reason why. But we really want to get stuck into, don't we, Mark, about the reasons why it's so important to desex these small mammals. And we'll run through each species and mention the one or two or three, in a couple of cases, important reasons why we need to desex them because of disease processes that occur in them. And the first one is rabbits, Mark. And the reason why we want to desex the, those female rabbits is because of the uterine neoplasia. It is such a such an important or or a high incidence condition in the female rabbits. And depending on the studies you read, you read, Mark, and it's a little bit rubbery, but it's anything from sixty to eighty percent plus of these female rabbits as they mature and it's all age related mark if they the longer they live the greater chance that they will develop the uterine cancer is 
60 to 80 percent um, once you hit to four to six years of age so it's extremely important to desex these female rabbits even if it is a breeding rabbit so i think the comparison that i usually mention to clients is the incidence of uterine neoplasia in a female dog if she is not desexed is something like one quarter of one percent mark if i'm correct it will be pretty close to that but it is is very very small compared with 60 to 80 percent which we get in the um in the rabbits if they're not desexed so that's why we desex the female rabbits mark why do we desex rats and mice well, for s- similar sorts of reasons, the um, the the uh, um, mammary neoplasia, uh, as with our um, uh, dogs, um, they certainly our uh, um, uh, the likelihood of those uh, tumours is markedly less once they've been um, desexed. And uh, we've seen a, a large number of an increasing number of cases of. Uh, Pituitary neoplasia, pituitary cancers in um, in uh, rats. These benign growths um, are, um, still cause significant pathology, um, and uh, the incidence of those tumours is decreased uh, if we desex our rats. And this strikes me. Um, one of the comments I wanted to make, Brendan, was that um, a lot of our small um, our small mammal patients suffer from. Uh, the second best syndrome that um, that the clients uh, sometimes think that oh well, that's what we will do with our dogs, but um, you know these problems are not as significant for the uh, uh, rabbits or the rodents that we get to see. Um, but um, as you pointed out, the problems of not dissexing are much much more um, prevalent amongst our small animals, and um, they they're often you know like as in. Uh, our pituitary tumours, they are real quality of life affecting things for the, the blindness and um, the other issues that we develop with those poor rats there um, and, and, and significantly preventable. Definitely. And the classic study for the rats is it was done in female rats where they took two one, one big group of female rats when they were young and they uh, separated them into two groups. One group they desexed and the other group they didn't desex. So this is female rats. The group they didn't desex, 49% went on to develop mammary tumours. The group they didn't desex, 4% developed mammary tumours. So it was a massive difference there, Mark. Um, the males do get mammary tumours, but it's nowhere near as much. So, yeah, we strongly recommend desex in those 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 female um, and male rats and mice. Um, and the pituitary neoplasms, yeah, we see lots of them certainly, Mark. And I don't know whether we've spoken about it in a previous podcast. You can refresh my mind if we have, Mark, but we should talk about that at some stage. And those brain tumours are very common in aged rats, both males and females, and they show signs from everything from just a bit of ataxia. The client may report that that rat, rat is, is drunk um, or, it, or it falls over. Um, it may have uh, partial paresis or paralysis of one or all four limbs and um yeah the, the the client often reports as their their rat is drunk or, or it's struggling and they may say it has arthritis but it's amazing how many of these aged rats that we euthanize and then you open up the brains and you have a look at those um, pituitary glands and they're massive mark and it puts pressure on the rest of the brain so very common 
The next species that we recommend desexing for is very strongly as our guinea pigs. And the reason why we're doing that in the females, Mark, is the ovarian excuse me, ovarian cysts are very, very common in them as they get older. And again, it's amazing the statistics on this. I think it is anything from 90 to 97% um, of female guinea pigs will develop ovarian cysts. And most of these cysts are non-functional cysts, meaning that they don't produce abnormal hor- uh, hormone levels, but they can physically end up being the size of, well, a mandarin or, or half the size of an orange mark. So they can physically put pressure on the, the abdominal contents there. So that's why we desex the girls. And I didn't mention it in our show notes, Mark. The reason why we desex the boys is we get a very common problem with the geriatric bores as they get older. And I'm sure you will remember what that is, Mark. They, they have a, a horrible impaction around their butt end. It seems that I get all the questions about butt. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was, I, was, I was just testing you there a little bit, Mark. But, yes, we get that horrible... <laughs> horrible um, bore butt, as I call it, Mark, where uh, they get a dilated uh, rectal region and the owners have to end up cleaning out the backside of their male geriatric guinea pig. So if those males are desexed at a fairly early age, the chances of them developing bore butt, Mark, is very, very small or uh, definitely a lot smaller um, when they get older. So that's why we recommend desexing the guinea pigs. And do you want to take the ferrets, Mark? It's the last one we're going to chat about today. Yes, uh, uh, ferrets, um, we recommend desexing, particularly the females, um, well, once again, the, our um, uh, show notes don't mention the uh, the likelihood of uh, odour being an issue. That's one of the reasons we consider desexing them. Um, but um, in female ferrets, it's the uh, complication that one when they come into season, um, they will not go out of season until they're mated, and that. Uh, uh, situation where they uh, remain with very high circulating levels of estrogen leads to estrogen toxicity and um, and a number of complications, most particularly the bone marrow uh, failing to produce replacement red cells. And so the uh, poor female ferrets become anemic, very anemic, and ultimately so anemic that they um, die. Um, so there's not a doubt in the world that um, desexing them is an excellent preventative strategy for that. But also um, there is some good evidence to suggest that uh, um, desexing them at the right time um, uh, might be an important consideration in the development of uh, one of the other banes of the uh, the existence of veterinarians who look at ferrets, adrenal disease. Um, So you've got, you have some recommendations for about the best time to desex ferrets, don't you, Brendan? Yes. And it, the reason why I paused there is I was just writing down some notes in that we have uh, three or four topics for a future podcast there regarding ferrets. There's so many things we can talk about ferrets for an hour mark, and one of them will be insulinomas in ferrets, one of them will be estrogen toxicity in ferrets, and one will be adrenal gland disease in ferrets. So that's something to look forward to in the future. But but yes, the difficulties of the desex in the ferrets is it's the balance between not desexing them too too early because there's a direct link between desexing ferrets 
when they're very young and the incidence of adrenal gland disease as they get older. So generally, in, in my practice, Mark, we we don't desex the ferrets until they're at least six months of age. And increasingly, I'm thinking about and starting to use the implants, Mark, using the Deslorin or the Supralorin implants as as the first choice to to prevent um, the problems with the estrogen toxicity and, 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 and stopping the males being able to, to produce viable sperm and then potentially continuing with the, with the implants every year or so or surgically desexing them at a later stage and just going with the implant initially. Are you thinking of switching to that type of strategy or do you still go with the surgical desexing? Look, at this stage, Brendan, we've stuck with the surgical desexing. We've, um, we use, as you know, we use uh, an awful lot of the Deslorelin implants and, um, and, uh, they, you know, there, there, um, is an, in, I think an increasing amount of evidence that using those in the first instance, um, to stop the reproductive activity, um, and prevent that estrogen toxicity is, uh, um, but allow for some of the other, hormonal aspects which would appear to be preventative um, uh, or protective against adrenal disease there's a growing school of thought that that's a good thing but we haven't switched over yet brendan we're still um, recommending that between sort of six and eight months that we dissex those ferrets and um, we'll deal with the other problems as we go on Yes, well, I'm sort of at the stage where I 90, probably 95, 99% of them I still do the surgical desexing, but I'm increasingly thinking and suggesting to some clients that maybe we should consider doing the implant um, first up and then then reassessing things as we go down the track. And yeah, I'm using a lot of the implants and I for the adrenal gland disease control, which we will talk about in an, in a future podcast. And I think I did two or three over the last couple of weeks, uh, for the classic adrenal gland, the bald ferret look. Um, and they seem to be responding very well to the implants as far as getting their fur regrowing mark. So yeah. And you did touch on the, the point about the odor control. And I think that is a really important point to make in that an, an undesexed ferret will smell very ferrety, Mark. It will, will stink. It will have that very strong musk odour, especially the males. And majority of that smell is under hormonal control. So a lot of people or clients will come in and they'll, they'll say, I want my ferret desexed and descented. And as you know, Mark, we don't like descenting ferrets. We regard it as a cosmetic procedure. It is illegal in some countries, not in here in Australia. And I know in some of the other countries like the US and, and England, it, it is still legal to do, but I do regard it as a cosmetic procedure. And once you explain to clients that most of the smell of the ferret is under hormonal control and that desexing them will reduce that smell quite dramatically, uh, we don't need to worry about removing those anal glands or those scent glands, Mark, and the clients seem quite happy. And I think that that goes back to if you look at a lot of these old books that people buy in the pet shops that will still mention take your ferret to a vet for descenting and desexing at an early age. So that's why we don't do the de Sentin, Mark, do you have yep. a similar process? Exactly the same, Brenda. We also take the time to point out to people that the odour that arises from ferrets when they uh, that arises from their scent gland, they 
they, um, which people often refer to as floofing, um, they that that odor is only produced when they're stressed, and so it's not like they're just constantly dribbling stuff out of those scent glands. They, like skunks, physically. Um, uh, um, uh, consciously exercise the expression of those uh, scent glands, and um, and so if they're doing it regularly, the the ferrets are stressed. And if you take a stress ferret and um, cut the scent glands out, then you will definitely make it smell less. But are you improving that animal's quality of life? I often ask my clients, um, and so we generally suggest that um, desexing them alone is the best way to go, and to try and make friends with them so they're not stressed. Yes, there's no excuse for a bitey ferret, for instance, Mark, and behaviour control and being able to train them. So it's just poor socialisation and training if they do do that. Yes, and most of that smell of the ferret, as you um, hinted, is under control of the skin. It's not from those scent glands. So once you desex it, it, it the odour comes from the skin. Um, it decreases the general ferrety smell. They'll still smell like a ferret, but you won't have that really deep, um, musky type smell with them if they're desex. So, yeah, that's one of the main reasons or that we convince our clients to desex those ferrets. Uh, so we're looking at those three concerns with the ferrets, the estrogen toxicity in the females, the adrenal gland disease. We have to be careful about um, not desexing them too early and the odour control as well as those obvious ones that apply to all these species, Mark, and that's the breeding aspects if you don't want the animal to end up with a lot of other little ferrets or guinea pigs or rats or rabbits or mice um, and the behaviour aspects and it's usually the first thing we mentioned to a client that has an animal that has poor behaviour attributes is to think about desexing that particular animal and the thoughts about the increased lifespan of the desexed animals, although for a, lot, for a lot of these small mammals and our exotics, marks, Mark, I don't think there's a, a lot of hard data out there about convincing us that um, there is a definite increase in lifespan, although logically I think it does make sense that they are probably more likely to live longer if they are desex than if they are not desex. But I think we need some hard info out there, Mark. Um, do you have any sort of general other general comments about our reasons for desexing these animals? And we won't talk about the reptiles or the birds here, Mark. I think we'll lump that into another little episode because... The well, I just did want to um, ask you a question about um, about those guinea pigs because I see the same thing as you, very large um, cysts in those ovarian cysts in those female guinea pigs. Often um, uh, they the guinea pigs go really well. The owners will report that uh, they've noticed the abdomen's getting bigger until they reach a certain point and then they'll go off their food and um, get into serious trouble. Um, uh, do you think, I, I, why do you think, they go off their food physically because the cyst literally occupies the space that the food should be in or um, puts pressure on the organs. Do you think these uh, female guinea pigs are in pain, Brendan? Possibly. I mean, my answer to that is I don't really know. I don't have any hard evidence about that. But, yeah, um, when you consider the size of some of these ovarian cysts, they are massive, aren't they? And they're often multi-lobulated fluid-filled cysts there. And when we talk about the desexing of them, my standard technique for these guinea pig desexins with the 
large cysts is to first deflate the cysts first. So I will gas down the guinea pig, pre-med them and gas them down and aspirate those cysts and then I'll get them back a week or two later to perform the ovariectomy um, technique, which is a preferred technique that I have for, for desexing these female guinea pigs, just removing those ovaries rather than jumping in and trying to desex them at the same time as removing these large cysts. But no, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, Mark, why they might cope with these cysts for a fair period of time and then they start to feel potentially or supposedly a bit uncomfortable with them. And I think that's what's happening there. They're just feeling that they've got these... Um, Space occupying cysts, Mark, that are that are um, in that abdomen and taking up a fair fair percentage of that abdomen, and then we're starting to get conditions like the gut stasis that we see with them, and they're just feeling like they have a bit of a belly ache, Mark. Well, you hinted not at quite happy there, so so that's yeah. my answer. Although it's not much of an answer there, Mark. Um, I know it's um, a good answer, Brendan, and you hinted at um, the. Uh, the fact that you do need to desex these um, these guinea pigs because um, uh, the guinea pigs will feel much better if you aspirate the fluid from the cyst, but inevitably they come back a few weeks later, um, a couple of months later, if you are if you don't actually take the ovary out. So, um, an important point to make: just aspirating them won't solve the problem. Definitely. I mean, the only ones that I may consider just aspirating it and not doing the desexing is a really old guinea pig, so a, a geriatric guinea pig that I'd regard as potentially a risky risky pig for doing surgery on, and we may do the aspiration. And, and luckily enough, although it's few and far between, some of them you may aspirate the cysts and they do not come back for several months, but that's probably an exception. Well, I think the outro guy is about to jump in here, Mark. We will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks for listening.